and doing the music this morning. Well, I got a question for you as we start. Here's the question. What would be the title of your autobiography? What would you entitle your autobiography? Let's say you were sitting down to write your memoirs or your life story. What would you call it? What would you name the book? Now, I know this is one of those cheesy icebreaker questions that sometimes I give to the poor community groups to discuss. Uh, I actually stole this particular one from Maple Street Biscuit Company. Y'all like that place? They always ask you a question like this instead of taking your name for an order, and uh, that's what they do. And when we went there, my father-in-law gave an answer for the title of his autobiography, something like this, This Too Shall Pass. I thought that was pretty good. What would you say? I might, I might quote uh, my friend Bilbo Baggins and say, the road goes ever on and on. Isn't that true? Or perhaps we could take some famous autobiographies. Uh, I looked some up this week. Some lady named Catherine Hepburn, who I'm too young to know who that is, but she titled her simply, Me. That's an easy one, Me. Uh, and then some guy named Arnold Palmer, again, I don't know who he is, not because I'm too young, but because I'm not a sports guy, uh, something to do with a beverage, I don't really know about him. Um, his autobiography was A Life Well Played, that's pretty good. Or some other guy named Michael Jordan, again, I don't know who that is, uh, I'm just kidding on that one, For the Love of the Game, sounds like he had a boring life there, For the Love of the Game, hmm. But what would the Apostle Peter say? We've come here to John chapter 21. If you're not there, go ahead and turn back there. What would the Apostle Peter say? We're going to see his restoration in this chapter. What would he entitle his life story? Well, before he met Jesus, maybe he'd say something like fisherman. That's all he was. That was his occupation. Led a pretty boring life on the Sea of Galilee fishing. But then he met Jesus. We'll talk about that. Uh, If you turn over to Luke 5 and keep a finger in John 21, we'll turn over to where he met Jesus in a little bit. But after he met Jesus, of course, we know he denied Jesus three times, as Jeremy read, and he probably would have called his life story failure. Fisherman, then a failure, messed up, broken forever. There's no hope for him. But after our passage this morning, John 21, Jesus pursues him and everything changes and he's no longer just a fisherman. He's no longer a failure But now his life story is forgiven. He has had his broken story restored by the Savior. Or perhaps we could say follower, even to the death. From fisherman to failure to a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. And I hope to show this morning how your life story, even if it's marked by the same sort of brokenness that Peter's life was marked by, and let's be honest, all our lives are marked by that, even if your life looks like his, of abandoning Jesus after you profess him or just being caught in all sorts of brokenness, your story, like Peter's, can also be restored by the great story writer, Jesus. And so we've come here to the end of the Gospel of John. This is sort of an epilogue to the Gospel of John because if you remember, the end of chapter 20 kind of seemed like the end. But now he's going on and he's putting on this epilogue. It's like one of those books you were reading and you think you're done, you get to the last chapter and then you're like, what are all these epilogues and and postscripts and all these notes in the back? What's going on here? That's kind of what the Gospel of John is like with chapter 21. But it's not boring at all. It's very essential and it kind of wraps up the story of one particular person and that is Peter. In addition to wrapping up a bunch of themes that we've seen through the Gospel of John and we'll be able to get into But what stands out to me from this chapter as kind of the main driving point 
is that Jesus knew Peter's story. Jesus knew Peter's story, every facet of it, from his former life as a fisherman to his failure. He knew that ahead of time. He predicted Peter would deny him to his current feelings, even as he sat there having this last great conversation with Jesus on the beach and even to his future death. Jesus knew every part of Peter's story. And Peter acknowledges that in verse 27. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. And he does. And this knowing isn't a mere head knowledge, like Jesus intellectually knows Peter's stories, although that's certainly true, but it goes much deeper than that. He knows Peter's story sovereignly because he is the one who wrote his story and is the author of our stories as well. He's in control. Even, dare we say, in our moments of failure? How could we say that? We know, of course, and we'll study this in James chapter 1 this fall, that God is not the author of evil and he does not tempt us. We are responsible for our sinful choices. And yet even in those moments, God is writing our story. And he can take even what the enemy means for evil, even what we mean for evil, and turn it for our good and for his glory. And we'll see that very powerfully in the life of Peter. And I hope you'll be able to see by the end that it's in your life as well. Peter's story has always really encouraged me because of all the characters in the New Testament, he's the one I could go to when I'm feeling like a failure, you know? You can always identify with Peter. I mean, Paul messed up in, before he met Jesus, right? And we can identify with that if that's part of your story, if you had something you really, the Lord brought you through when you got saved. But for those of us who maybe have been saved for some length of time and we're just dealing with the day-in, day-out temptation and failure, who do we look to for some hope? I often look to Peter because, man, he followed Jesus. He had all the zeal and excitement, but then he messed up and he denied him three times. And yet here in this chapter, we'll see that even for those of us who have been following Jesus, deny him, go astray, fail, as we all do on a weekly, daily basis, even for us, there's hope for restoration. And like Peter, Jesus wrote your story. Jesus knows your story. And Jesus can restore your story. That's the big idea I want you to take away this morning. Jesus wrote your story. All your past, he wrote it all. He knows your story. Right now, he knows everything about you. And he can restore your story, no matter the brokenness, all for his glory. All for his glory. Let's look at four specific things from this chapter that Jesus knows about Peter's life. We're going to see four things he knows and break down the chapter that way. First of all, Jesus knows our former life. Jesus knows our past background, our past framework, how we grew up, every detail about our background. And this is one of those things we can glance over here in John chapter 21 as it describes in these first eight verses and beyond all that happened in this failed fishing expedition uh, where Peter and some of these disciples, they go out and Peter returns actually to his former occupation as a fisherman. And John's giving us these details because he's trying to show us that Jesus was so tenderly pursuing Peter even as he returned to his former occupation. Notice verse 3 of John chapter 21. It says there, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And six other guys joined him. We see Thomas, remember him from chapter 20? He had been restored from his own doubt. Nathaniel, who if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, had doubted Jesus was the Messiah then and Jesus said he saw him under the fig tree. 
And then if uh, you remember, James and John are the sons of Zebedee, and John is our author. They're going along with them, and then two other disciples that we don't have their names. Now, some would point out here that Peter seems to almost be abandoning Jesus to go back to his fishing days, because Jesus came and made him not just a fisher of fish, but a fisher of men. And so is Peter denying Jesus, again, kind of leaving that life as a disciple behind and saying, hey, I'm going back fishing? We're not 100% sure, and there's people divided on this chapter. Some see this as just Peter waiting around. Jesus said he had to wait for the Spirit. Jesus has appeared a couple times already to Peter back in chapter 20 with the other disciples. He may have appeared individually to Peter. Some of the other Gospels make reference to that. And so Peter's just waiting around uh, for the Holy Spirit to come, and this fishing trip is kind of his version of a fidget spinner. You know, he just needs something to do, so he's going to go fishing. Uh, That was what he, he just did. But others see this as more as an intentional failure and, and, and his denial weighing on him so much that he says, I'm kind of giving up on this. There's no hope for me. I'm going to go back to fishing like I once did. Either way, Jesus appears to him and shows them that really, Peter, you're not the best fisherman after all. In fact, Jesus proves to Peter that in fact he is better at fishing than Peter is. You ever notice that? They tried all night to catch fish, and they did not catch a single fish. I don't know if you've ever been fishing, but I hope your fishing expedition wasn't as much of a failure as that. That's pretty terrible. And then Jesus appears on shore, and he just says, hey, kids, why don't you try the other side? And immediately, bam, their nets are full. There's 153 fish, to be precise, and somebody went and counted that because they did not want to forget how many fish they caught. 153. Jesus is the best fisherman. In fact, when they get on shore, there's already some fish laid out there. He's already making breakfast. Jesus had already caught fish that morning. They're out there, man, they're slaving away. They can't catch any fish. And Jesus, he's probably on the shore saying, here, fish. And the fish jumps out and he gets the fish and he puts it on the fire and he's cooking breakfast. He's the best fisherman. He, he doesn't even need them to catch this fish. And yet he graciously makes their fishing expedition successful. And can I just say that Jesus is better than you at at what he's called you to do as well. Um, All your skills, all your background, and and your personality, and what your gift sets are, they come from him, and we should not forget that. We can trust him with our life stories. Now, this story should ring a little bit of a bell for you, because a very similar story occurs in Luke chapter 5. Had you put your finger there, turn there, Luke chapter 5, and we'll see why Peter reacts so strongly here in John 21 because something very similar happened when Jesus first met Peter in Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 1, Luke 5, 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing, this is Jesus, by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Did you catch the similarities between Luke chapter 5 and John 21? There's a lot of similarities. There's both having this toiling all night and not catching any fish. And then a net being cast out after that and catching a bunch of fish. But did you also notice the difference? In the first instance, when this miraculous catch of fish happens, Peter falls at Jesus' feet and says, Leave me. I, I, I don't deserve to have you in my sight. I am so sinful. But in John chapter 21, after he realizes that Jesus is on the shore, what does he do? He doesn't say, leave me. Instead, he pursues after Jesus. He jumps into the water. He throws his robe on and he just jumps and is swimming towards the shore. He's running to Jesus in spite of still knowing that he's a sinful man. In fact, he, perhaps he knew it even deeper because after Luke chapter 5, he had denied Jesus three times. And yet, the presence of Jesus pursuing him, even as he's back to his former life, man, that encourages Peter and he jumps in and pursues after Jesus. And they have this amazing conversation. And that's encouraging for us because Jesus can transform us, whatever our former life and background, from failures, fishing failures, to fishers of men. And he can change our story. And he can use us. And he pursues us. And we'll see that more as we not only talk about Peter's past former life, but specifically, number two, the fact that Jesus knows our past failures. Our past failures. The times when we have messed up and strayed. Let's continue our narrative here, and we get to their breakfast. I want you to notice the scene. I want you to picture it in your mind's eye, this scene. In fact, to help you, here's a picture Jerry and Tessa gave me from the Sea of Galilee, perhaps in a spot similar to where Jesus and Peter and the disciples would have been having this breakfast. And I like that the sun is coming up because that's exactly what we see happening here. We know it's very early morning. The sun is rising and they've got all these fish. And Peter jumps out of the boat and picture him coming out of the the lake there. He's dripping wet. The other disciples are rowing back to shore. They're kind of laughing at him saying, could you not have just waited with us in the boat? We weren't very far after all. And uh, they all come to shore and there's this big catch. And as Peter comes onto the beach, he's dripping wet. He sees Jesus there. Maybe in the distance, because day was breaking, he hears a a rooster crow. We don't know. Maybe that happened. He heard that sound far off, and it reminded him of something. But we know for a fact he smells something as he comes onto the shore. He smells something burning. He smells a charcoal fire. Notice in verse 9, a charcoal fire. That's an oddly specific detail. And the only other place that term is used, a charcoal fire, is back a few chapters ago where Jeremy read in the account of Peter's denial, chapter 18. Did you catch the similarities between these two things? Peter was warming himself around a charcoal fire while Jesus is on trial. And they're asking him three times if he knows him. And he says he doesn't. I don't know him. Other passages says he curses and swears, I do not know that guy. And yet here he comes. Days later, Jesus has risen again. He comes onto the beach And he smells that charcoal fire. Can you imagine what he's thinking? Maybe he stops in his tracks. What is Jesus doing here? Is he trying to make Peter feel really bad? No, I think Jesus is very gently restoring this part of Peter's story by reminding him of this smell and this scene so that he can now associate good memories with it. 
No doubt when he made that smell and and would hear the rooster crow, he would think of his denial. And now Jesus is pursuing after him to restore this part of his story in spite of his failure. But there's some other similarities in this passage from the Gospel of John. In fact, a whole list, I'll put them up here for you. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? How many times? Three times. And how many times did Peter deny him? Three times. Three times. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus is giving Peter the chance to publicly confess his love for him in front of these other disciples, just as Peter, before he denied him, said, oh, I'll never deny you. I will keep following you in front of those other disciples. Now he can profess his love, but he does it so much more humbly. And he says, oh, you know, Lord, my love for you. He's not bragging. He's not boasting. But there's other things. Jesus tells them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. And this, no doubt, reminded the disciples there of maybe the first time they met Jesus, some of them, where they were following him back in chapter 139 and asked where he was staying, and he said, come and see. And this phrase, come and see, and variations of it, has popped up all throughout the Gospel of John, so much so that we made it our theme, as you can see here, come and see, doing life with Jesus. That's Jesus' invitation throughout this Gospel. Come and see me, experience me, come into my presence, no matter what you're like. From Nicodemus to the woman at the well to Peter who denied him, come and experience Jesus. Behold him, look at his life, and then choose to do life with him. And if you've got got nothing else from our series in John, I hope you've at least gotten a renewed vision of who our Savior is, that you've come and seen him, and that you have a renewed love for him as the one who welcomes the weak, the weary, the sinful to come come to him. In fact, he says, come and have breakfast. That's his invitation to all of us. He's the kind of savior we can eat with, be comfortable with, do our lives with, invites all of us. Though we are tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, maybe often failing, he welcomes us into his presence to have our stories restored. There's a few other parallels we don't have time to dwell on here. I'll put them on the screen. It's interesting that Jesus has bread and fish for breakfast. Those were the very things he multiplied in the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6, if you remember, and where Peter had said, I'm not going to leave you then as well as others were leaving him. And then the fact that he took bread and gave it to his disciples is reminiscent of what he did at the Last Supper when he commissioned the communion, uh, the Last Supper there, the Lord's Supper, And we know in chapter 13 when he did that, that was when he washed Peter's feet. And even though Peter objected to it, and that's when Peter is talking about how he's never going to leave him. Maybe all these things Jesus is tying together in this moment to remind Peter and these disciples of where they've come from and how he's going to restore their story. And Jesus works the same way in your story as well. He ties all the different elements of your background, including your failures, and he ties it all together together. Ties it up with a bow as if, like the best author. There are no plot holes in the story of our lives when it comes to God writing our story. He takes everything and he can use it for our good and for his glory. One person described this chapter as kind of like Jesus' inside jokes with his disciples. With the catch of fish, the charcoal fire, the fish and the bread. He's bringing everything full circle for these guys. And John, as he's recording this, is concluding his book and showing how Jesus does that in our lives as well. But we know that we fail. And yet we know that just like Peter, Jesus knows ahead of time that we will fail, right? He knows the very moment we abandon him, we deny him. And yet still, he chose 
to pay for that failure. 2,000 years ago on a cross, 2,000 years before you committed that sin that you committed this past week or yesterday or this morning, he still chose to go to the cross and pay for that sin, pay for the consequences of every sin before you committed it. He knows at the very moment when you profess to believe in him, he knows that you're going to fail. He knows that we are weak people of dust and that we will, in the future, have moments of temptation when we give in. He knows that at the moment we put our faith and trust in him. And yet still, he chooses to accept us and bring us into his family. He knows us so much more than we even know ourselves. All our weaknesses, we think we have a grasp of them, but Jesus knows us so much deeper. Now, this doesn't excuse our sin. This doesn't mean that that we have no choice but to sin. We know we are responsible for our sinful choices. And yet, it should encourage us to pursue him all the more because he has pursued us. To forsake the sin that he paid for, that he died for, and to give us motivation to love him and live for the one who died for us. But it is a glorious comfort to us when we do fail that Jesus knew it and he loves us and pursues us still. So how should this truth encourage us practically? Well, I think it should give us the proper glasses or binoculars, if you will, to view our past life through. So remember my my binoculars here. You can get them out if you really would like to. Uh, We've talked about viewing our lives through the binoculars of the gospel, the glasses of the gospel, But I think we need to turn them and remember we should view our past through those same binoculars as well. And we should view our past through the lens of Genesis 50-20. Where Joseph, talking to his brothers in spite of all that they did to him, asked for you, you meant evil against me. And they were responsible for that. They had done terrible things to Joseph. But, and it's a glorious truth, God meant it for good. Evil people were doing evil things. And yet God was writing a story in the midst of all that. And that is true for every moment of our lives. When a lot of people are working for evil in your life, God is working for your good. When you are working for evil in your life, God is working for good. And and he is working in such a way that even the worst things in life can be tools, instruments that he can use for our good and his glory. He is the great restorer. He is the great reverser. He can bring good and his glory out of our pasts. And so we should view our past through that lens. And there's a movement on all sides today to view our past as everything. Your past determines everything about your life right now. There's a movement, there's a pressure to view our lives that way. And certainly, don't get me wrong, the past has a big impact on us. I think we can all attest to that different instances in our past, our failures, and the trials of our lives. It does shape us, but the person who shapes us even more than our past is the author of our stories, our God. And he can overwrite what the enemy means for evil. So when regret pops into your mind over some failure in your past, whatever it is, man, you just can't move past it, you must remind yourself. You must apply these glasses and view through this lens And remember your status now. I'm forgiven. If I've confessed my sin, if I've repented, I can move on. And God has something for me to do right now. And this doesn't mean that the consequences of our sins disappear. We know with David and Bathsheba, David was forgiven, and yet the consequences played out for his evil action throughout his whole life. 
But it does mean that our sins are forgiven and our past does not have to dominate our lives right now. Only Jesus should dominate our lives. And he can use these things for his glory. This is encouraging when you're just thinking through your current circumstances. Recently, a couple months ago, as I was driving down the road, I was thinking about the different struggles of my life. I was thinking about anxiety and certain situations that had worked out and were causing me anxiousness. And I just remember saying to God, man, I wish that had not happened. Or I wish I didn't even know about that. Man, I'd be sitting pretty right now just driving down the road, enjoying my life if that thing had not happened to me and if I did not personally struggle with anxiety. Man, everything would be great. And the Lord reminded me, would you actually be praying to me? Would you be seeking my face if that had not come into your life? And if you had not been struggling with anxiety? Because he was using those things to draw me closer to himself, revealing to me that I'm weak, that, that I don't have everything figured out, that I can't be self-dependent. He was using even my weaknesses to draw me toward his heart. But you say, man, I just feel so guilty. I'm just so ashamed, dirty from the things that are in my past. I want to encourage you with some words from the past, hundreds of years ago, from a guy named John Newton. Uh, words that inspired the song we sang, His Mercy is More. This is where the current songwriter got inspiration for that song we sang at the beginning of our service. And John Newton, famous hymn writer, of course, wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote to a young Christian friend, and he said this, you have one hard lesson to learn. That is the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but it is needful that you should know more. Oh, thanks, John. That's very encouraging. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. I hope what you find in yourself by daily experience will humble you, but not discourage you. Humble you it should, and I believe it does. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinketh of you? But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts out none that come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly indeed, but surely. Many suns, showers, and frosts pass upon it before it comes to perfection. And in winter, when it seems dead, it is gathering strength at the root. Be humble, watchful, and diligent in the means, and endeavor to look through all and fix your eye upon Jesus, and all shall be well. I commend you to the care of the Good Shepherd, and remain for his sake yours. John Newton, March 18th, 1767. Man, those words ring true for us today. Picture him writing that to you. The Christian growth of our lives is slow indeed, but it is steady. And God has not given up on us. Failures do not define us, because that's what our Father does, as the song says. Now, what about aspects of your past outside of your control? What about those things that maybe you didn't fail in, but other things happened to you? And there's so many things we could add to this list. Maybe a past divorce or financial mistakes or all those many broken things in your life. Broken relationships, betrayal, abandonment, natural disasters, all that evil, violent people have done to our world and to your life specifically. 
Are these things outside God's control? Did he fall asleep at the typewriter? Did he drop the pen? Did he make a smudge on the story of your life? Did he abandon you? No. He is still writing your story even in those moments. And he is working things for your good and for his glory. But you say, man, I am too broken to move past this thing. He can heal you. You say, I'm too weak. Those are the only sort of people he can use, weak people. You say, man, my life feels so destroyed. It's as if a locust worm has descended on my life and eaten all that is good, and I'm left with just bitterness and ruin. My dear brother and sister, Joel, the prophet, reminds us in the words of our God that I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. He can restore all that this evil world has done to us. He is the great recycler, the great reverser, the great restorer. So don't give up on him. He is still writing your story. If the story isn't over, your story isn't done. Yes, we are products of our past, both our failures and the things that have happened to us, but we are far more the products of our sovereign and good God. So trust him. He knows your past, but also, gloriously, number three, he knows our present feelings as well. He knows our present feelings. He knows where we're at in this very moment. Let's look more closely at this conversation, returning to to John chapter 21. Look down again at verses 15 to 17. And Jesus starts by saying after breakfast, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Notice that he uses Peter's old name that he had renamed to Cephas or Peter or the rock in chapter 1. And he also says, more than these. More than what? What is he referring to here? Different opinions on what he could mean. Uh, It could mean, do you love me more than you love fish? Being a fisherman, pointing to the fish there or the net or the boats on the shore. Or, I think more likely, do you love me more than these disciples, these other disciples around this charcoal fire? Do you love me more than they love me? Because remember, Peter had boasted to Jesus with all the other disciples there before his crucifixion that even if everybody else leaves you, Jesus, I won't. Yeah, all these other guys, they might leave you, but I won't. So he boasted that he loved Jesus the best. He will follow him the furthest. And so Jesus asks him, do you love me more than these? Do you still make that claim? And Peter responds humbly. He doesn't repeat his boast. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Not, of course I love you. I'm the best person at loving you. No one can love you better than me. Instead, he says, you know. You know how I'm feeling right now. You know that I I do love you. It's almost as if he's saying, I want to love you more. I do have love for you, but I know my failings, and you know my failings. You know my past, but I love you. Help me love you more. That's a place Jesus wants us all to get to, this humble profession of our love for him. He can work with that. But notice that the third time Jesus asks this question, it says Peter is grieved. Why is he grieved? Because he realizes Jesus is restoring him, and he's realizing these parallels with his denial, and he's realizing, man, I don't love you perfectly, but he wants to. Man, you know everything, Jesus. You know I love you. And how does Jesus respond? Does he say, hmm, yeah, we'll see about that, Peter. You said that before. No. No, he accepts him. Even the first time Peter says it, from the very first time, Jesus accepts his profession of love and gives him a mission. He commissions him. He gives him a task. 
Three different times, different variations, but very similar words around the same idea, feed or shepherd my sheep. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus wants Peter to care for his followers, this flock that according to John 10, Jesus died for. He knows us, he calls us by name, and he's passing off to Peter and saying, hey, take care of my followers. Does Peter do this in his life? Well, we can read through the book of Acts and see, yeah, Peter does step up and and he does preach and he feeds the flock and he's one of these early founding fathers of a sort of the church. And then much later in his life, he ends up passing this same commission on to other elders, the next generation of shepherds. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see that humility that Jesus has worked into him over the years? And verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter passes on to the next generation, and generation after generation of shepherds, God gave to his church to feed his flock. And you say, well, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not called to be a shepherd. I'm not called to be a pastor. Well, that may be true, but there is application for us all. First, recognize the underlying truth. Just because Peter failed did not mean God was done with him he still had service for him to do. And so even if you're not called to shepherd, God has work for you to do in spite of what you did in your past. And as you confess your sin, and Jesus restores you, and he even uses your weakness as an opportunity to encourage others who may be struggling with those same things. You might say, oh, I'm, not too, I'm not good enough to do anything for God. Well, actually, by saying you're not good enough You are saying you actually are qualified to do things for God because only those who confess that they're needy and weak, those are the only sorts of people God can use. And we can see that in countless examples in the scriptures. But second, as application for this phrase, feed my sheep, we should see for all of us as believers a commission to be sheep that are easily shepherded and easily fed. The Bible does recognize our limitations and calls us sheep, which is kind of insulting and kind of endearing, but the Bible does not call us another animal, my favorite animal, the Bible does not call us a llama. Oh boy, here he goes, llamas again, what's going on here? All right, bear it with me here. We are called to be sheep, not llamas. Now, llamas do all sorts of things. They spit, so we should not be the kind of sheep that spit, okay? Hopefully not literally or in any sort of way, complaining or criticizing, but we should also be Sheep that willingly come to the shepherds for feed. Recently, I was up in Northern Virginia visiting my parents, and they had talked this place up that had a llama. I was all excited. I like llamas. Let's go to this place. We go to this place. I go in to eat lunch, and they're out there feeding the llama, sending me pictures. This llama's ready for you. You know, it's, it's so excited, and I was excited. So I go out there. I get my food to feed this llama, and this llama will have nothing to do with me. This llama, oh, he did not want to come near me. All the other animals, they were all coming, the sheep and the pigs and the cows and chickens, everything under the sun. But the llama would not come and receive food from me. It went as far away as it could. I was trying to call it. You know, I don't even know how to do a llama call, but none of it worked. It went this way and that. I followed it around. Finally, it just sat basically in the one place I couldn't get to it, and it just kind of made some huffing noises like, hmm, you know, just sitting there. Didn't want anything to do with me. And that's sometimes how we can be. 
sometimes. We are a little standoffish. We pull back. We don't want to be fed. We, we kind of go our own way. We withdraw from people and relationships. And hopefully we don't spit, but we just kind of pull back and, and stay aloof and don't get involved in smaller groups and, and, and don't always tune in to the work of God in our midst. We refuse to be fed by the word and by the shepherds. So my admonition to you, hopefully memorable, is to be a sheep, not a llama, and be easily fed by the shepherds. But also, this is a great example of what we can be praying for, even that First Peter 5 passage, what we can be praying for as we consider our next lead shepherd that we're searching for here. Man, a great thing to pray through. God, would you give us a shepherd who, as Andrew did so well, smells like the sheep. A shepherd who will shepherd us, will feed us, will do these things that Peter describes. Man, I know this is the heart of the pastoral team and the search committee, and I encourage you to keep praying for us and pray specifically using passages like this that God would grant us someone like this. But also I want to give a special admonition to the men of our church and ask you to consider if God has called you to shepherd, maybe. Perhaps you're on the younger end and you're considering your life calling. Have you considered the ministry? It's a grand and glorious calling. Or perhaps you're somebody who's moved on and is in the older stage of life. Maybe you already have a vocation set and yet you feel the call and the gifting to serve the church. As Andrew explained years ago and established for us, we have an elder training program. It's run by our first non-vocational elder, Pastor Chase, and he takes guys interested in this who already have an occupation but would come alongside our shepherds here and serve as non-vocational elders. And I wonder if maybe God is calling someone in this room um, to that and could talk to us or to Pastor Chase We have one dear brother and friend, James Porter, who's well into this process. He heard the call. He expressed interest. Pastor Chase has been helping him, working with him. He's taken so many classes, and he's now getting experience teaching in various settings. Some of you have gotten to experience that. To Lord willing, head in the future towards being ordained and and being voted on and being another non-vocational elder here at Calvary. And that's so exciting. That's awesome. And I encourage you men to think about that. Perhaps God is calling you to feed the sheep. But final application from this phrase, even if you're not called to shepherd in the role of pastor of a church, maybe God's calling you to shepherd not as a pastor, but in a smaller group setting. Maybe you're called to shepherd a small group of children in a children's Sunday school class, and that's no less important than preaching up here. Maybe you're called to shepherd a a small group Bible study of men or ladies or a community group or teach a Sunday school class. We are gifted with so many wonderful people who have felt that call, desire, and equipping and do it for us so faithfully. But maybe God is raising up some of you. Some of you have even talked to me about this this summer. It's so exciting to hear. But there's so many opportunities and needs for shepherds of smaller group to minister the word, whether in discussion or in giving a lecture. Uh, We'd love to talk to you about that. But one last thing this morning that we're called to do, Jesus calls Peter to shepherd his feed his sheep, but also he calls him to follow him. And that's how the gospel of John ends. And Jesus not only knows our past, he also knows our future. Let's finish John chapter 21, finish the gospel, look down at John 21, starting in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus still talking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, 
you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Jesus knows Peter's death. And he says, follow me. Even your death, Peter, can bring glory to me. Isn't that a comforting truth? If you've lost a loved one who knows Jesus and seen their legacy of faith and how they glorified him to the end. And we can all do that. We can all follow this last commission from Jesus to Peter. Follow me. Don't just claim to follow me like you did before I was crucified and you didn't follow through, or follow me into the courtyard, but then deny me, or follow to the empty grave, but not understand. Peter, you must keep following me. That's how chapter one of John began. Jesus called the disciples, follow me, and that's his last command here at the end of John 21. Follow me. I will go first. You won't have to be alone. Come along with me. Interestingly, as Peter and Jesus maybe are walking along that beach and the waves are lapping their feet, there is a guy literally following them, And Peter turns and says, hey, there's John. What about this guy, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, that's none of your concern, what's going to happen to this guy. I told you how you would die, but I'm not going to tell you about this guy. You are to follow me. What John is doing here, he's putting to rest a rumor that probably had arisen. Remember, this is John as an older man writing this book for the next generation, likely the last living disciple, and he's trying to encourage the next generation not to give up hope when he, John, passes off the scene. And not to give up hope when Peter, probably by the time this is written, had already died. Just because Peter died, Jesus knew about that. Jesus predicted it would happen. And soon, John will pass off the scene. And he wants to be clear, Jesus did not say that John wouldn't die until Jesus returned. He instead didn't say anything about John's future. And he told Peter to be concerned with following him himself. And we can learn a few things from this. First, that our job isn't to know how other people's stories will go. Our job is to focus on our own story and what God is doing there. Only Jesus knows the end of the story for anyone, including ourselves. So that means the story isn't over for anyone who's still alive. God is still working. And we can't know what Jesus might have for them, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our spouse, for our friends. You are responsible to follow Jesus yourself and do your duty and leave the rest to him. But on the flip side, you are responsible to prepare the next generation to follow Jesus when you pass off the scene. And that's what John's been doing in this whole gospel, and especially here at the end. When he dies, that does not mean that Jesus lied or Jesus died. Jesus lives on and keeps working. In spite of these founding fathers of the faith passing off the scene, their deaths merely glorify God, and they point to Jesus. 
And every generation since then has come and gone. And true believers have testified to the end that Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. He worked in all these ways. Come and see him. And then they pass off the scene. And another generation comes and passes off the scene all the way till our present day. And so my encouragement to those who are on the older end, are you prepping the next generation, kids, grandkids, or the generation in this church for your departure to keep the faith into the next generation? Are you mentoring the next generation? Well, they don't want my mentoring. They don't want my wisdom. I beg to differ. I've had many a conversation, myself included, where the young are asking for that wisdom and that maturity to be invested in them. And I know many of you do that, and I'm so thankful for it. But let's be a multi-generational church where we don't just complain about the differences between the generations and sit back and say, ah, it's all going downhill from here. No, we invest in one another. Knowing that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, Jesus will build the church from generation to generation. He has not given up on the younger generation, so we shouldn't either. Nor has he given up on the older generation. He has a task for you to do as well. So let's not give up on anyone. Well, as we wrap up, it is an amazing fact we have seen that Jesus knows our story. And it's equally amazing that we can know him, the one who knows us. And that's how John ends with a little note, maybe even from his church elders, saying in verse 24, we know that his, John's testimony, is true. Just attesting, you can build your life on this gospel, on this Jesus. Come and see him. Do life with him, because he is the life. So what is your story? What does your autobiography look like? Whatever it is, past, present, future, if you follow Jesus, he knows your story. He wrote your story. And he can restore your story, whatever the failures of your past, all for his glory. So follow and love him. One song that's really encouraged me this week ties in very well. I'll put some of the phrases up here. My story for your glory. Even my pain for your purpose. My mess can become your God, your message to the world. My one life given for your one mission. All of me, all for you. That should be our heartbeat. He wrote our story. He can restore our story. He knows you. Isn't it encouraging when somebody tells you, sitting down with you, hey, I know this is a difficult time for you. That's just encouraging when somebody says that to us. I had a conversation like that some 11 years ago with my nana. That's my mom's mom. She is here with us today. Uh, so glad she could come down to hear me preach. She's really one of the reasons I am in the ministry. And in this season of my life, when I did not want to move from Colorado to this crazy place called South Carolina, Simpsonville, what's going on there? I didn't want to come. I was having a hard time, and she took me aside, and she said to me, I know it's hard. I don't remember anything else from that conversation. I'm sure there was wonderful things, but I remember those words, and they meant so much to me. Somebody saw what was going on and said, I know it's hard. And in a similar way, dear friends, I want you to hear Jesus' voice as we wrap up this series on conversations with Jesus. I want you to picture Jesus sitting down with you. He's conversed with all these people through the Gospel of John, but now he's sitting down with you. And he tells you, I know it's hard. He tells you that he knows you. I know what you're going through. I know your background. I was there in your childhood. I was there in every dark moment. I know your past mistakes. I know how you're feeling right now. I know that you, you do love me 
but you're weak and weary in the ups and downs of life. And I know your future and how you will die. So trust me to the very end and follow me and love me. I did so many amazing things in my life that not even the whole world itself could contain all the books that could be written of all the things I did. And if you follow me and let me work in your story, then you too will experience such amazing things that the largest library in the world could not contain all the stories that we as a church could share of how Jesus worked in us. So, my child, my bride, my church, keep your confession of me alive now and forever, that I am your hope in life and even unto death. Follow me. Jesus, we hear that call and we want to follow you. But we are so weak and weary, so full of failures, so full of pain and brokenness. You see it, you know it. You are restoring it. I pray for each heart here today as they think back. Maybe this sermon has stirred some difficult memories for them and I I don't want to discourage anyone. I want to encourage them with the truth that you were there and that you have a plan and that you are writing their story. So encourage them, build them up, draw them into the truths of scripture and help them to see you working in their lives every moment. When we mess up this week, no doubt we will. Oh Lord, we don't want to. We do want to love you and follow you, but we're weak people. Remind us in those moments that you have forgiven us, that you have a purpose for us, a plan, a commission, and help us to get up and follow you. Lord, we confess that you are our hope in life and in death, and we want to hold on to that. Remind us as we sing this song and testify, remind us of this confession we hold to, that you are there and that nothing comes apart from your command. And you will keep us to the end. Give us hope, give us purpose, help us follow you, we pray.